gonna click upload on this file when I'm finished. That way, if this is our last episode, we can say this podcast went out on a high note. Our chat with Matt Johnson was some of the most fun we've ever had. But prepping for three episodes in one week has pushed Nick to the breaking point. Jake still hasn't recovered from the Sixers' postseason. He barricaded himself in the shutout back. So he's not coming out till they fire Doc Rivers. And I'm at the end of a mad scramble to get all this put together in time for the anniversary of the movie we're reviewing. Nobody trusts anyone's opinions anymore. And the editor's very tired. Nobody trusts anyone's opinions anymore. And the editor's very tired. nothing else I can do. Just wait. Eric Dellinger, co-host, Scary Stuff Podcast, June 24th, 2022. Welcome to a special episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, joined by co-host Nick Leamy. Hey, everybody. How you doing? And Jacob Jones Goldstein. Hello. How's everybody doing? Life is beautiful. Ah, uh, sure. <laughs> Sorry. It's, we're recording this night one of the NBA Finals, and the Celtics are in it, so like, I'm just a mixed bag as a human being at this point. <laughs> it's uh, It's tough. Times are tough. You'd mentioned in our Freddy's Dead chat about the you know using these episodes as time capsules. So yeah, well, it started in the Freddy's Dead talking about how at the time I was happy about the Philadelphia about the Sixers because the Sixers had just won a game in the uh, conference semifinals. They were they were down two games to none, and then they came back and they won one, and that's when we recorded. And so I was I was in a great mood, and then they won another one. I was in a great mood, and then they didn't win anymore. And you know, well. So much for that. It's just life as a sports fan, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're recording this on night one of the Celtics versus the Warriors, but hopefully this episode will be coming out on June 25th, which is the 40th anniversary of the release of the movie we're talking about, which is John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. Woo! Apologies if it's later than that, but that's the plan. So we certainly have enough lead time. But yeah, this is really exciting to talk about. This is a top three horror movie for me. And we already did one of the other top three horror movies I have. So that leaves one left. Devil's Pass. Yeah, it was Devil's Pass. Yeah, that's my. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Got it in one, Jake. (laughs) We're an audio only pod, which is a shame, because if you can see the look Eric just gave me through the camera, it was uh, it made it all worth it. But yeah, this is a big one for me. I'm so excited to be doing it. And. Oh my God, the guest we've got for this episode, I am so excited to have on the pod. Hell yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't realize this one was such a big one for you, so that's that's exciting. Oh, so yeah. I'm glad we, we got around to do it. I, I knew it was a big one for Nick, and I knew it wasn't a big one for me, and that I feel uh, sad and lonely because of that, but uh, <laughs> so it goes. We'll get into that. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about its place in, in the hierarchy a bit, but it's also a big movie for our guest, and who I am... So excited to have on the pod. So, yeah, let's get to the chat. All right. 
Hey everyone, post-production Eric here. Just wanted to mention real quick that we ran into some technical issues with our usual recording platform, so we had to switch to Zoom for the recording with Matt. So if Jake and I sound a little bit different, it's because Zoom apparently didn't like our microphones very much, but I just wanted to give you a heads up in case you hear a shift in audio quality. But this chat with Matt is absolutely fabulous, and we hope you enjoy it. I am so delighted to introduce our next guest. I've been a fan of his uh, initially from his comics work with DC's Vertigo line. The ones I have next to me are his Papa Midnight series and Wright State. In prose, he's the author of Drop, Pim, Loving Day, and the upcoming novel Invisible Things, which is coming out on June 28th. And he's also working as a writer on the upcoming limited series Manhunt for Apple Plus and The Fall of the House of Usher for Netflix. And most importantly for our podcast, he's a longtime supporter of the Philadelphia 76ers. So please join me in welcoming hey. Matt Johnson. Hey. Hey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks How for having you? us. Glad Good. to have you. Good. Oh, thank you so much. for it. I've been following you on social media for a long, long time. And at one point you would put out a tweet of 10 movies to know me and you had listed the thing on there. And so mm -hmm. when we started this podcast, pretty much day one i said man if we ever get to the thing i was gonna see if we could ask you to come on so this is so wonderful thank you so much for coming on awesome yeah okay now i realize that i've been trapped you put my favorite bait <laughs> right here now it's <laughs> had me instantly but but i'm glad i'm here man you also had two live on there i meant to ask you is that the zhang yimo to live the chinese one or was it chinese the uh, okay yeah. yep yeah you know what the, the, with that film like all these films have like stories you know and with that one, I bought that used as a VHS tape at mm -hmm. TLA on South Street for like almost nothing. And I saw it, I was just blown away after that. So I started watching a lot of Chinese cinema after that point, but that was just like a whole other world opened up. Uh, nice. Yeah, I, we won't go too far on a tangent, but I took Chinese cinema in as a course in college. And the professor said that the author of the novel, Yuwa, was a friend of his. And it turns out he really was. Because wow. the next semester he came to visit and attended a screening of the movie. And <laughs> I got roped into, because I was working at the bookstore at a time, I got roped into being the person to handle selling all the autographed copies. <laughs> so my experience with Yuwa, the guy who wrote, you know, yeah. the, the novel that this phenomenal Zhang Yimou movie was based on is him standing behind me, patting me on the back because he can see how badly my social anxiety is kicking in <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm handing off and exchanging cash for all these signed copies of this book. Huh. Oh, that's so cool. I like. I remember. I mean, besides the fact there's amazing movies there, and the color and the actors are so amazing. Like to the point now, so many of them are in Hollywood, but so it isn't like doesn't feel as separate anymore. Mm. But yeah, it also just felt like this whole other universe, you know, that didn't, yeah. that was similar but different in like really interesting ways. They're like, and I think it's obviously the film and the color schemes on it too, where it's just so different from the world I was living in. That it just got, you know, the Gong Lee movies, all those, it just kind of like, it, it was stunning. I wanted to go into film. Originally, I wanted to do movies. Oh. And yeah, and that's the, like, I was always loved novels, but I wanted to do movies. And I ended up reading an interview with Spike Lee when I was like 20, and he talked about his first movie. He didn't make until, or his first, really, I think, uh, short film. He didn't make until he was 33. And I just huh. thought, oh my God, 33? You mean like when I'm close to retirement? <laughs> and then I just like, you know, gave up after that. You know, so it's kind of wild that I'm getting back into the screenplay stuff now. But yeah, I, I think like Dennis Leary it used to have this joke. They probably stole from Bill Hicks, but he used to have this joke that um 
his dad would smoke anything, you know, he, he was mm. the only person that would take any brand, you know, pull a twig off a tree and smoke it. And I think like, that's kind of my approach to the storytelling. So it's like mm. with comics and TV and film, and of course, novels, which is my main genre. You know, it's just, it's all been stories, really, uh, just different ways to get into them. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I absolutely want to ask you about getting into screenwriting in terms of especially the stuff you're working on now, which is really exciting. And for the movie we're talking about today, this is one you have experience with pretty young from what I remember from what you said on social media, right? Yeah, this, the th okay, so The Thing was the first movie I saw on my own, like without Ooh. my parents. Ooh. And it was a big deal. There was in West Philly, there was a, used to be an old like discount, you know, third run theater. And they had a double feature for a dollar. Uh, well, you eventually you turn not into your parents, but into your grandparents. Yeah. So it was a double feature for a dollar. <laughs> and it was American Werewolf in London. And nice. Thing. Oh, and, wow. uh, you know, I never taken like I met up with my buddy and we took the bus from Germantown, which is like a 40 minute bus ride. And I, I just couldn't believe, believe my mom was letting go. We were in the theater all alone. You know, it was just kind of mind bending. And then the movies themselves are just like it just couldn't have worked out better i mean i i really might have gone in a completely different direction in life like that big wow. because that's what i really like felt the full power of story and uh yeah and I, it's funny because i i didn't go back and watch stuff for a real long time i mean here and there is something like the thing is one of those things that we, we play on tv and i'd see pieces of it but i didn't just, like sit down until a decade ago on my 50th birthday i was like or sorry, 40th person. I got to this point and I'm like, let's let's go back and see. And I did a double feature for myself with the American Werewolf of London and the thing. And um, I still love American Werewolf of London too, but it just didn't hold up the way the thing did, yep. which is wild considering that American Werewolf of London was heralded as like the horror movie of the SNL age. And in comparison, the thing was, you know, talked about as the most hated movie of all time. But when you go back, it just doesn't. American Werewolf of London almost looks like uh, a third rate B movie uh, compared yep. to today, even though there's some great actors in it. Um, it just mm -hmm. doesn't hold up. And I, and that was a movie I would like quote from, you know, stick to the road, beware of the moors, best luck to you. You know, like there <laughs> all summer, I was just like quoting all that and just like looking at my hand, trying to make it raise and stuff like that. But the one that had the legs and the one that like was such a gut punch and created that feeling that I think I chased for a long time after that was John Carpenter's the thing. It definitely seems wow. to have a more lasting effect just sits with you that, that, that yeah. tension and that, and that foreboding. I was actually, I was rewatching again last night and desperately wanted to be able to just completely erase it from my mind. So I could experience yeah. it again for the first time with the not yeah. knowing who and what. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, I was, I, for a while there, I was watching it every year and I, like, and I had to stop because you know, part of that joy was those those little moments that you forget that are just so brilliant. Yes. And, and mm. you know, I mean, Keith David is like, I mean, uh, this is the beginning wow. for him of a massive career. Kurt Russell has a very uneven, you know, project wise, but he's fantastic in that one. Yes. And yes. like, it's just, it feels very modern, like in a way that Absolutely. Like, part of that wave, I mean, Aliens is hit, or sorry, Alien, the first one is hit there's this moment where cinema is changing. The baby boomers are basically coming of age, right? And so you're starting to see one, 
this auteur aesthetic moving into commercial film, but also you're seeing them relive the stories of their youth, right? Um, mm. Again, I mean, you know, John Carpenter does it because he loved the earlier movie, even though he didn't base it on the earlier movie based on the Campbell story. But still, I don't know, he, you get something in there that's like the birth kind of of a generation of film. Mm. You know, it continues what's going on with Scorsese and Coppola and all that too, but it hits in there in horror. And it's weird too, because like one of the things you talk about when you write horror is that horrors that really connect are ones that tap into existing fears we have in our society and bring them sort of to life in a way, mm. the same way we encounter dreams and nightmares, right? We can't deal with some issues directly or, or we hit a, a roadblock when we try and think about things directly. So our subconscious basically takes all the pieces and creates a metaphor. And so we experience the metaphor and it allows us to get further in or get past some of the places that would have like hit the brakes in our mind before that. And so many great horrors do that but it's funny because like with the thing the, the horror that you're seeing is mccarthyism mm -hmm. and it's not an era of mccarthyism yeah. right and similarly before that donald sutherland in invasion of the body snatchers like ah, a similar perfect mm -hmm. like impulse you know behind that and i was like confused for a while because i was like what is going on in the 70s that they're really worried about where they're all suspicious of each other in society and why is that kicking that way but i think it wasn't as much that it was more them going to relive elements of 1950s culture, you know? Absolutely. And there's but, also um, this underpinning kind of, uh, I believe I read someone talking about how there's also this kind of like inherent fear of like STIs and mm -hmm. like sexually transmitted diseases at the time. So because like the sure. AIDS ep epidemic was rising at the time. And a lot of that has to do with the blood, the blood samples in, in the show and such, you know, the, the, the fear of uh, the blood becoming tainted. In fact, there's actually yeah. a... Uh, a old, uh, I believe, World War II poster up in the office about this woman uh, with a badge saying, you know, I have an STD. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. it's like the, the, the illusions there of the infection of it as well. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's, I mean, it's weird. I was a kid, so I didn't think, I don't think I thought about, like, well, at the time we just said AIDS. We didn't used to say HIV. But I didn't think about AIDS until I was in high school, but for Same. obvious reasons, like Same. it wasn't. And also the American public started, like, embracing it later. Yeah, or not embracing it, but you know, dealing with it more in the public later. Mm. Yeah, I think definitely those elements are there. It's wild going back. I mean, I haven't watched it since the pandemic, and going back to see it now, it's interesting. I can't watch it until I can stop saying everybody's lines. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that's when you're no longer watching it. You're, you know, you're, you're reciting it, which it's is just sense memory. Thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, it's, it's was... interesting you mentioned it being sort of a new evolution stories or a new evolution in, in filmmaking, you know, like a pivot moment. And I, I actually watched all three. I watched the 1952, The Thing from Another World, yeah. then The Thing, and then I watched the 2011 technically prequel, basically a remake. And it's, it's interesting how they really do feel very much of their age for each yes. of them. Yeah, yeah. Like the 1952 one, I mean, they might as well have a character in the background screaming communism, you know, every time <laughs> right. they start talking. Not so, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's a good movie. I, I enjoyed it. It's you know, fun. Like, yeah. It's definitely different than the original, yeah. like the short story and certainly the later renditions. Yeah. And then you get to the, the John Carpenter thing and it's, you know, it's 80s with the, the super gory practical effects. Oh, and, yeah. You know, yeah. all these yeah. these great actors and performances and you know it, it leans heavily on 
the gore in terms of, of getting you hooked in it. And then yeah. you get to the 2011 one, which is, it's fine, but it, it has all of <laughs> mm-hmm. the, look, I enjoyed it. And I, I know I that's exactly it. right. It's fine. It's fine. It's, it doesn't it's add more to it, yes, yeah. but it's fine. Right. But it doesn't have any, you know, it's all CG monster effects. So it doesn't feel as, as real and as lived in as the 1982 one. And I right. think that's when you watch them together, you really see what the practical effects totally give you. And oh, I, like, yeah. I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of, of the film. I liked it. it. It was fine, but it's more for me because I'm not is a Mike? big gore guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, before we <laughs> talked about this, I talked, I was going to get excommunicated from the horror community. No, it's I'm okay. not a huge, that's okay. You know, I didn't dislike here's the it. Thing. Just, here's the thing. Like uh, <laughs> Carpenter was interested in doing his film because he loved the movie. But mm-hmm. he didn't go back to the movie because it just, he was confused. Like, why am I doing new? I don't want to desecrate this movie that I love. So he goes back to the 1938 story that had that more of that element, like who's sick, who's not, like, you know, who's there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which also, you know, predates McCarthyism by a decade, I mean, almost exactly. But for me, it's a testament to creative practice because the problem with the 2011 one for me is that instead of reimagining it and doing something fresh and feeling free to do whatever they wanted to do, there was such reverence for the initial movie that it just mm-hmm. becomes basically a Reddit board of little Easter eggs, you know, yep. um, as a screen. And you can't, that's not how you can create. You just can't do it. Yes. You yep. know, like I got to work in the writer's room. They're both done for Manhunt and for Fall of the House of Usher, which is going to come up, uh, Mike Flanagan and Intrepid. And uh, we, we you know, are counting the moments. Yeah, no, that's like, I am too. I don't I want to see what they came up with. I, I, but, you know, when you're in a writer's room, the showrunner is the storyteller and you're trying to be a part of their brain, right? So if they need access to a different part that they don't have immediately, you just try and help that. But it's all, it's all about them. And that's why I was so hyped to work with Mike because I, I mean, I loved Haunting of Hill House. And, oh, hell you know, yeah. And I loved Bly. But, uh, the reason his stuff or those pieces, you know, that's a very specific set he's doing. He's done a lot of other stuff. But the reason they work so yeah, we've well covered me, almost all of his his oh, stuff cool, on this. Yeah. We're we're huge Flanagan oh, cool. fans. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, he's good people. He's he's really wonderful to work with. But the reason I feel like those things work so well is that he's taking the source material as an inspiration and just an inspiration, and he's creating art from that inspiration as opposed to things you know, like trying to do things literally. Which, if, when you're not an artist, it makes total logical sense that you would think you could copy things directly. And I, I remember we used to go see movie versions of books, and it say based on the. And I was like, based on? No, 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 no. I went the exact same thing, you know. But it, it just doesn't work that way. And I, that's what I got with the 2011 one. That it was just um, it's very clean, but you need chaos, and the chaos comes in there from responding to the emotion and the subconscious which is incredibly important for something like The Thing in particular, because John Carpenter's The Thing is inspired by the original movie, which is inspired by the Campbell book, which is inspired by Lovecraft's Mountains of Madness, which is inspired by Edgar Allan Poe's narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. So it's connected. Come in full circle for you. Yeah. And the other part of beyond that is like, both with Pym and Lovecraft, there's several, you know, Pym, which I, you know, I wrote a kind of imagined, uh, reimagined sequel of it. 
Mm -hmm. Books that are successful. There's been tons of people that do this, but not tons. There's been several people over the years that have tried to end PIM because it ends basically in a cliffhanger that doesn't really make sense. And so a lot of people try to come up with books that kind of answer it or some of them famous, some not as famous. Some are really even unpublished. There's a self-published one that actually when I went and look at it after I wrote mine was more similar to mine than you know any of the other ones. But the ones that were the most successful were the ones that did not take it literally. The ones that kind of took the spirit of it in the direction. And the most successful one would be Lovecraft. Because he like, it's not about the specifics. It's about feeling, you know? And so with each one, you know, that's the same thing. When you look at the 50s one, the 50s one is cool. It's not scary. Even when I was a kid, I was like, you know, was that Creature of the Black Lagoon? Like, they just weren't. The only one that freaked me out was uh, Phantom of the Opera because those eyes and, hmm. you know, dental work were crazy. That'll do but it. Like most, yeah, yeah, most of those movies weren't scary. Like, as a kid, I thought, they're not scary. They must have been scary in their era. They're not scary. But they weren't scary. You know, they're looking back, we didn't perfect that really until, you know, the 60s and 70s yep. uh, going into the 80s. You know, it, it's such a, a massive difference between that. But yeah, it's it hits into the subconscious in a way, which is like artistically, hopefully is your sweet spot. If you go too far into chaos, it's just a hot mess, which like, unfortunately, I saw a movie last week that <laughs> from somebody whose work I love, I kind of thought was a hot mess, uh, oh, which no. was uh, A24's Men, which is- uh, Oh, the Alex Garland. Just, okay. heard a lot about yeah. it, but I haven't sat down and watched it yet. Yeah, it's, 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 um, <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. It's just not. It looks like a you know Brazilian ripoff of Midsummer or something. What I uh, hear is as, it's like, not entirely actors. sure what message it's trying to give. Well, yeah, and it's wild because when a writer doesn't quite know exactly what the story is about, you can feel it. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes a writer, you just hope if you throw enough shit at the wall, something will stick. But <laughs> and sometimes that works. But like. Yeah, it's weird because it's both like heavy handed in some ways, very obvious, and then other ways doesn't quite make sense in very kind of essential ways, or it doesn't make sense to me. You know, maybe I'll love it in 20 years. Who knows? Yeah, but with that balance of chaos and order when you're creating, if you don't have the chaos, it's not fresh. You know, it's just, mm. it's basically reciting it. Like I used to teach a lot of writing classes in the summer, you know, support my family, and you would get these people in who've been working on their novel for like 20 years at the job. And I'm like, they're working at the IRS, they're bored as hell, they're thinking about their novel all day, they come up with all this stuff, and then they go home and they write it down. Or like, or they think, I'm this summer, I've got to have two weeks, I'll go out here, I'm going to write it down. And unfortunately, what happens is the work ends up being very stale, because they're like, it reads like stale bread, because mm -hmm. it's not being fresh on the page, they're kind of reciting it from another point, it's missing chaos. And on the other side, if you just fall into chaos completely, it just loses all cohesion. So like a lot of the times it's kind of like walking that line uh, between the two. It's funny. I, I think about that a lot, that particular point uh, with the Zack Snyder's Watchmen movie, yeah. which was felt like a recitation of the, the comic. And I remember yeah. being excited for it and watching it and thinking, oh, this is exactly what I've always wanted. I hate it. Right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Eric which happens a lot. Go on some right? Zack Snyder thing there. But, he was, he was say, this is two episodes in a row. Please stop doing this. To me. <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? So, how does this relate to the Philadelphia 76ers? I'm going to tell you right now. So, like, <laughs> I'm so excited right now. You have no idea. <laughs> Downplay it, but like, you know, when Michael Jordan was the best player in the league, and we didn't realize what a raging asshole he was, 
and he was just everywhere and like he was sort of like a messiah that had come to earth that's how we you know we thought of him and was treated and when he retired there was all this thing of like who's going to be the next jordan and you know one of the people they looked at was you know lower marion's own Kobe bryant like who, who patterned so much of his game almost directly from how jordan played i mean you there you know now we can watch youtube videos we can match up their moves and it's like it looks like it's a biopic movie, you know, of the Jordan years. But like the most exciting player that came next was Iverson, right? Yep. And here we I got this guy. That. He's short. He's got these massive feet. Like, I don't think like he like the proportion of his feet to his height was kind of like what you get from like pre-pubescent boys, you know, and he did not have the best shot percentage. No, but he was chaos energy personified. He was something totally new. You know what I mean? And that's like every time there's somebody, you know, it doesn't matter if it's art or in sports. The next great thing is not a replication of what came before. The next great thing is great in part because it's something we've never seen before. Right. Mm. So that feeling that we get is like, oh, my God, what is this? That comes from not replicating, but innovating. You know, yeah, that's how I, mean, I feel gets, when I see Joel Embiid hitting step back threes in the playoffs. Yeah, nobody's like seen that. Yeah, it's I, new. I mean, I remember his first game. He came out there and it was like he was playing on like easy mode on on two nope. K. You know what I mean? And he was a point. <laughs> I got to watch it again because there's point where he's looking around like, wait a minute, I can cream everybody. Give me the ball. Give me the ball. You know, I, mean, I was like, at that was, game when they they played that yeah, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City about? game. I remember watching him like, uh oh, yeah. hold up, yeah. something yeah. might be he going was like right here. Right. And so like, that's a, you know, that's what I'm looking forward on the page. And that's what I'm looking forward as a viewer. It's also why so many things fail. You know, I mean, it's very difficult to pull them off. You can have incredibly talented people like Alex Garland, who, you know, you just can't bat a hundred percent if you're throwing knuckleballs, right? Knuckleballs are, you hold on to them barely. You learn how to throw it. You learn how to get just the right element of chaos and order so that it can go in in a way that the batter can't actually predict because no one on earth can predict how the ball's going to fly through. And when the knuckleball works, when you get a great knuckleball, you know, pitcher, it's amazing. It's, it's magic. However, most knuckleball pitchers, you know, fail most of the time because, because it's just straight chaos. You know, it's a last resort, you know, in a lot of ways. It's interesting because he can relate that to the thing a little bit specifically because at the time in horror everything coming out was trying to remake halloween essentially yeah. trying to and you know texas chainsaw massacre and then yeah. here's the thing and it's like well this is not that at all yeah. it's, it's interesting it. that you picked those two because uh I, I didn't find out until prepping for this episode that before carpenter came on the folks who were working on it prior i think it went through a few folks but there was at least a few yeah. script drafts done by kim hankel and toby hooper coming off of oh texas god chainsaw massacre. yes so somewhere out there is the Kim Hankel draft, which I would love to get a hold of. I did read yeah. the the Bill Lancaster, or I think it was the shooting draft they used of the Bill Lancaster script for this. But yeah, if I would love to hear. I think I, one of the drafts of the Toby Hooper one was underwater was the setting. Or? It, I, I have this like little paragraph I found about the Toby Hooper potentiality. It goes something like this. Hooper's version would have been drastically different from the Carpenter version, featuring an alien that did not shapeshift or assimilate and following an Ahab-like character named the Captain, who goes on an epic quest to find and kill the Thing. The film would have served as its own <laughs> film and as both a remake and sequel to the 1951 film, with little influence from John W. Campbell Jr.'s novella, which Hooper openly found to be boring. Hooper also wanted the film to be a horror comedy with slapstick humor. 
It was pitched as a swashbuckling action adventure epic, a modern day Moby Dick, not in the ocean, but at the bottom of the world, Antarctica. They basically yeah. said it would. They've avoided disaster. It would have been one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> Which you think the crazy part is, it might have been awesome. It's a totally different movie. <laughs> you know? yes, it yes. might have been amazing. You know, it's just not the same thing. You know, I mean, it's yeah, that, that's very that different. Bad, has yeah. to be good, right? I mean, except for like trauma movies. You know, but besides that, you know, <laughs> the one thing I did like about this movie a lot was how Carpenter was inspired is the wrong word by alien it's like he wanted a monster that was not a guy in a suit yeah he very much needed something new truly so he wanted what what if a suit was a guy yeah (laughs) exactly and i think he got the best guys for it too i mean you end up with uh rob botman and wiston just doing amazing work oh my god but they were also arguing with you each other on set because there was a fight over whether or not they should really show the monster pieces or whether Mm -hmm. it should be all in silhouette which makes sense because both of those are reacting to what we just talked about with the 1950s kind of corny uh monster movies Mm -hmm. you know so it makes sense that totally like that you want to hint at it because the reality of it the 1951 when you see the monster it almost looks like an snl character you know what i mean compared Mm -hmm. to like compared to what we're on today but very, very I think they got around versus, it. Yeah. you know, right, this. right. Uh, Halloween City, uh, Frankenstein. Yeah. Yep. But I think like they got away with both because mm-hmm. we see it, but it's not definable. It's a mush. And, yep. you know, so we never there's never a point where we think we know the confines of the monster. We, we just see parts of it and a lot of very different forms. I mean, obviously, the funniest one uh, is the head spider yes. you know, around. <laughs> That noise uh, but, it makes when it's skittering is the best. <laughs> I, I, horror movies don't scare me much, per se. I mean, they do sometimes. But, you know, we, we have a horror podcast, so you get a little bit of nerd to them after a while of what's yeah. coming. But that head thing still messes me up every single time. Yeah. Does it? Like, it, its legs pop out, it skitters away. I'm like, I don't like any yeah. part of this, and I can't wait yeah. until he hits it with the flamethrower. Yeah. Hit it again. Well, so what? Because it's old now, and you're like, you think you look back, and it's, you know, you can see that it's rubber and all that. It doesn't matter. It still no. messes with you. Like it's yep. yes, and it happens at the first great moment because you are like bugging out with fear because we see this in like batshit moment that in some ways is similar but ratcheted up version of what you know the the alien popping out of the gut and alien right. But like we're rashed up and then they pop this thing out and just mess with us right. It's something we know is funny, and yet we're so freaked out we're still like ah! you know so like good. that's that's brilliant. I mean, and it, I, I think it's half the reason it's... Possum was so scary. because oh. it's basically just that thing again. <laughs> I think they what they did with it visually was just phenomenal. It's it's a beautiful. Okay, it's gonna sound weird. It's a beautiful creature, in my opinion. It's absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> I love the way it morphs and changes, the use of tentacles and the coloring. Like they actively muted all the clothes and sets and everything so that the colors for the creature be so much more vibrant. All those reds and those yellows and greens, they just really pop on the screen. And it, it it's an art form. Making creatures like this, in my opinion, is an art form and they nailed it. And I, I yeah. love this this monster. And there's moments like that. They're like, when I think of it, I th- that's probably the first thing I think of because it's so iconic. There's nothing really like that. You know, again, there's you could see a conversation with the alien and aliens uh, going back and forth. But in the movie, 
the moments that really just uh, can we curse on this podcast? I yeah, absolutely. I'm okay, sure yeah. we have already. Okay. <laughs> it's all right. If we the did, moments... this is a record forever. Okay. <laughs> all right, good. The moments that really fuck with me are like very quiet. Like, for instance, the first one that really messes with me is the dogs. Yeah. They're in the kennel yes. and they're all like, these are big, scary wolf dogs, you know what I mean? And they're all just quietly hiding on the other end of the yes. kettle from this one dog and it's just like yo like if you could see that in real life like if you went to the humane society and that shit happened you would not be adopting that dog you know what i mean like there's something <laughs> well we might not nick would be all over it right? <laughs> yo. and then even like the it's the quiet moments like i can't remember the name of the character but the first one they they outcast into the storage unit and Where? he's just sitting there quietly talking and he's very normal and we know that there's a 99.9% chance that he is actually a horrific alien being come to destroy all life on earth, right? Oh, yeah. Or even like the uh, the European, what were they, Finnish? I can't remember. Norwegian, in, Norwegian. Norwegian, coming in and like, we don't understand them and they're shooting at this dog. And it, that's in, comparatively quiet, you know? Very. Um, even though the, the central scene is the blood test and all that. And also the ultimate one, the ending. You know, we just had two men talking in the cold yes. and there's so much tension that it's not, and that's why we've been with them for two hours. So there's, there's so much tension that we don't even feel it as tension anymore. We basically yep. feel it as like a water we're swimming through, yep. you know? Yeah. And it, it's also a nihilistic thing because there's a bunch of different interpretations of what's going to happen and all of them are just horrible. So yep. what does it even matter? Yeah. It's interesting it, that talking about the dog real quick is that when the Norwegians first show up trying to shoot the dog and blow it up, that scene vastly changed the reception of the film in American audiences versus European audiences. Oh. The reason being, when the Norwegian shows up in American film, he's rattling on in Norwegian. They have no idea what's going on. And then the, everything's kind of quiet for a while, simmering. You're waiting to see what happens. And then the dogs happen. And it's just like, whoa, it's, what's going on? Whereas in Europe, where it's oh. very common for them to have multiple languages. Most right. of the guys say, don't trust that dog. It's not a dog. Yeah. It was an right. exposition dog. That totally makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. so at that point, they're just watching the dog and trying yeah. to think, oh, what's going to happen? Yeah. yeah. This whole that's series is pretty rough on dogs. Yeah. I like, that's funny because I, I saw Dances of Wolves when it came out in the, in the south of France. I was in school in Britain and I got like a Euro pass. And everyone was talking about Dances of Wolves. So I was like, all right, let me go see it. And I didn't realize, like, it's all subtitled. And the whole thing was subtitled in French. Like, you know, I just couldn't, <laughs> no idea what the movie was about. I still don't know, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, that that is that other thing, too. And maybe that's also kind of American as well. Because we, well, even then, even more so, but we're such a monolithic language. I mean, now our languages are he more heavily mixed with Spanish probably than they've ever been. But that kind of feeling of not understanding what the rest of the world is doing. Mm -hmm. yeah that just felt that felt very american yes yeah <laughs> to to circle back to the element of quiet it's that was one of the big takeaways of going back and and seeing it again uh, one is i'm becoming increasingly particular the older i get about the use of score in horror films and and so many of them being kind of over embellished and it's it's relatively spare in this you know the morcone yeah. score is used in a few bits but mainly for a sense of kind of like disorientation rather than actually like escalating the tension, like in the Norwegian camp where they're trying to piece together what exactly what happened. So it is there to, you know, for horror elements, but a lot of it is 
like I mentioned, just mostly disorienting. And so what you're left with in the absence of that, and since the dialogue is relatively cut down to, you know, everything is so minimal in a lot of ways and so efficient, just listening to the soundscape of it, I was struck by that the ever-present thing is the howling of the wind, just constantly, you know, even if no one is talking, there is the sound of the wind just constantly with that background thought of, you know, isolation and desolation, all the, you know, the images that that sound brings with it. But it's particularly horrifying in the the dog sequence you mentioned, Matt, because it's, you know, when that's the special effects element of that comes out and the dogs start to be attacked and they start amping up, you know, the dog howls and they just, the two kinds of howls, wind howling and dogs howling, just blending together yeah, in it right. to the, the point that forth. they're basically indistinguishable yeah. in, in the subsequent scenes when Clark is reacting to it. And it's just this, oh, it's it, the sound design of the movie really, really struck with me this time around. Yeah. The quiet yeah. element, it's interesting. I guess it didn't think of it, but the very end of the scene, you know, the long scene where they're testing the blood and, you know, everybody's torched and it gets real quiet. And then I'm blanking on his name. It's still tied to the couch. And he, Gary, Gary, it's real quiet. And then he, you know, starts yelling, you know, I'd rather not spend the winter tied to this fucking couch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I tell you what, I first saw this, you know, pre COVID. And then this is the first time I watched it post COVID. And boy, did I relate to that comment a little bit more than I probably would have liked. I was to. thinking that watching that, how, yeah, the, the whole isolation elements of it, you know, this is one of the fun things about the setting and whatnot for everything it goes is the, is the characters are already basically in a powder keg situation by being, you know, trapped in isolation for such an extended period of time, you know, that they, you know, they mentioned at the onset, but yeah, that, that whole thing was like, this does take on another dimension now as it would have instead, you know, two years ago. You know, what's funny when you mentioned Gary, this like has nothing, I don't think it was planned, maybe, but like one of the freakiest parts of the movie for me is that guy's eyebrows. It's got like these spider <laughs> eyebrows. Like they're just like, like CGI. Yeah, I, I mean, they're just, wow. So I didn't grow up on this movie. And I, I hadn't seen this until uh, maybe 10 years ago. And in fact, I might've seen it right before I saw the remake and that was 2009, huh. I think. Um, well, remake slash sequel. Well, um, it's both. But yeah. So, so I didn't, my first association with the thing was there used to be an ad on the sci-fi channel for, I think it was Starlog or possibly Fangoria. And it used a bunch of random clips. And one of them was, the Stan Winston design for the the thing dog hybrid when they first opened the kennel and they turned the flashlight on it and the head pivots and it's that thing screaming. That image was used in this commercial on the sci-fi channel for years. Yep. And I had no idea what movie it was from. Yep. And I always thought, I want to find out what movie that is, because that is a creepy looking like the special effects on it are so striking. I didn't realize until 10 years ago that that was from the thing. And, and then I actually saw yeah. the scene in context. But what led me down that thought was when you're talking about Gary's eyebrows, it's like uh, the only thing I know that guy from at the time was he was the president from Clear and Present Danger. If we're going to talk yeah, about right. if we're going to talk about yeah. facial hair, we have to talk about the lack of it when Wilford Brimley. That just blows oh, yeah. my mind every time yeah. I don't see the mustache. Yeah, well, he, he was 48 there. I mean, I always think of like, you know, it's famous for like looking 70 for 70 years. Right. But he already that kind of chill. Quaker Oats vibe while all this stuff yep, is going yep. down. I'm just like, ah. Oh. I love the the scene where he's hacking away at the radio and the computers and he's talking in a relatively normal voice. I'm like, I know you yeah. think I'm crazy, but I'm not crazy. And it's like, you should be <laughs> shouting more if you weren't crazy, to be honest. Yeah. Talking yeah, in a normal voice. Burning is this guy. Yeah. Please light him on fire. 
<laughs> the scene yeah. of him trashing the communications room has possibly my favorite back-to-back dual line delivery in any horror movie yeah. which is you know the dulcet tones of keith david saying oh hey, hey blair we know you don't want to hurt anybody yeah. uh, by wolf Everly, i'll kill you <laughs> it's just the, the parallel delivery cracks me up every time they, I yeah. mean, they had some real the cast on this yes. there's like some of course there's the star but there's just heavy hitter character actors the whole thing like richard Mason. yeah you know, Brimley, Keith David, like, you know, all of them. It's, it's, you look back, I mean, that's something you honestly, good casting that's not star casting oftentimes can't be defined for like another decade. Yep. And then you see who had uh, chops and who has legs. And then you look back and you're like, wow, like somebody, the casting agent just knew their stuff. And unfortunately, the way that, that uh, Hollywood works, we don't, there's no casting director credit. So, for like reasons that have to do with money and power and all that, because just getting your name credited on a thing is a big deal. Uh, it, it makes your pay grade and everything else. But the casting on it was just fantastic. I, I mean, you, you, I look back and I see all these people from all these different things that I love. I, I actually, I did not meet Keith David, but I was, he was playing Paul Robeson on Broadway. And Ooh. there's a bar like in Midtown called, I think it's the Russian Samovar. And uh, he would go to this Russian bar after the show. And he would come in, or at least I heard he did it more than once, but I saw him do it once. He came in and, would, and sang Paul Robeson, you know, songs, the songs that oh, he wow. sang in the former Soviet Union. And uh, look, it's just that presence and the laugh and like, yeah, it's just, he's an amazing actor. I mean, even if it, like, so there's good. something about Mary alone. You know I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that role right there. That intro scene. Yeah, yep. it's, it's impressive. Well, if we're talking about yeah. Keith David, I'm going to have to throw out that uh, every podcast we do a community connection where I, find some tenuous connection between the show community and whatever we happen to be watching. Yeah, uh, I knew this, this one, one was, was going to be real just, hard. This one was a slam dunk. Like, <laughs> oh, Keith David, who played Elroy Potashnik in season six of Community. So, yeah, how about that? Does that, that work for you, Nick? We finally that's got just, a that, primary show. source. That is exactly one. what you need. Yes, I think that's a perfect example of a community yeah, connection. We'll buckle up for Ninja Scroll. So, Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Which may or may not be out by the time this comes out. Um... <laughs> But in terms of the cast as a whole, yeah, everything in the film is so spare and, and especially in, in terms of the dialogue, everything is just kind of the bare essentials. You know, there's no big, you know, random flourish or exposition dump of, you know, someone you know, waxing about, you know, you know, ever tell you about my wife or something back home or something and, and yeah. you know, bits. Everything is very economical and just there to, to help keep the engine of the movie's momentum going forward. And even reading the Lancaster script, even it had a, not a ton, but a few more embellishments. Predominantly, it's some of the different set pieces and some of the action sequences are constructed differently. So all of which it's so spare that with a different cast, it could potentially have gone really poorly because it, there's, there is not a lot there in terms of the dialogue there. But everyone is so perfectly cast and does so well with so little. Mm-hmm. it's yeah. just phenomenal and i didn't realize until uh if anyone listening doesn't have it and you're a fan of the thing get the shout factory collector's edition blu-ray i guess it came out like two three years ago a it's got a remaster done by the dp dean condy and it's gorgeous but there's phenomenal making of material and during one of them there's an interview with a co-producer Stuart Cohen, and he's talking about carpenter's initial casting thoughts for the movie and initially, his plan was to just basically go down the line of everyone he worked with recently. So McCready was going, he was thinking Tom Atkins coming off the fog. 
Uh, Blair was Donald Pleasance. Childs was Isaac Hayes. Uh, Gary was Lee Van Cleef. And Norris was Charles Cyphers, who was another regular from those early movies. So initially it was going to be pretty much all folks from previous works. And instead what we get is pretty much just Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that, I mean, to go back to me being on Mike play against Jacques, basically like that, that's, <laughs> you know, one of the things I think works so well about the intrepid stuff is that it's an ensemble cast basically. And, and mm-hmm. you see people coming back for roles. And I think like, there's a reason, and you know, there's a reason that works. I mean, it's obviously an old theater standard, but when you have an idea who those people are and how they work together and then, how they work visually together, but also the personalities behind the screen, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because when you're producing this stuff, I mean, it's tense. It's like the, the craziest time at your job for three months. You know what I mean? So before I was just like, oh, they got a bunch of, you know, the same players again. But now I can see how they can, it, you get, we do have the opening here where we go into Nalls, that, you know, the cook and the doctor, and we get, we first get into the ship and they're kind of arguing off each other but there's such different types, which is also really important with the ensemble cast. And their personalities are so perfectly matched to the roles mm-hmm. that like um, you look in for five minutes and I can see like who everybody is. You know what I mean? Like if they were all from Philly, I could tell what part of town they were from. You know what I mean? <laughs> like or what radio station they listen to, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, and that's what you have to, I mean, that's another universal storytelling. If you're going to have a big group, you're like you can't have five guys named Larry. You know what I mean? Like it has to be disparate enough that you can it can imprint on you very quickly, so you don't have to waste as much time, you know, doing your initial establishing of the characters. But it doesn't. There's already once we get there, we already have the tension. We've already had the teaser, so you know we're much more willing to sit through that part and not feel like we're like when is the movie going to start? You know. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting because they don't give us much on anybody. You know, you don't really know what their jobs are. You don't know anything about their lives outside of Antarctica. You barely, you don't really know what they're doing in Antarctica. Like they never really get heavily into what that station is for or about. And when you watch the 2011 one, they basically, you know, here's Bob, he's the cook, here's John, he's the scientist. I'm like, and it it highlights that they don't do it in this. These are just a bunch of guys who, and they don't, I think it's in part because it is one of the things that makes it feel a little bit more lived in. Yes. Yes. But at the same time, it's also obvious that they did the work. They put a lot of time into thinking about their backstories and what they do. And if you pay attention, you can see it like, okay, he's the biologist. He is the geologist. You know, their roles are there. It's just there's no need to point them out. You're absolutely right. It's 100% lived in. It's funny you mentioned the biologist because what you just said applies to most of the actors, but at least based on the making of material on the Blu-ray, it doesn't apply to Wilford Brimley, <laughs> who is fantastic in the film. But the actor who plays Fuchs, Joe Polis, has a yep. has a fantastic story where he's talking about prepping for the movie because he's the assistant biologist to Blair, who's the, the senior biologist. And they were prepping and he was talking to Wilford Brimley and he said, you know, I, I just got done taking a biology course in Brimley. What for? He's oh, you know, so I have context for what the character's doing. Brimley just went, mm-mm. This movie's about rubber and steam. And that was, <laughs> that, was oh that was his prep, apparently. It's interesting, too, because their prep behind the scenes just makes you me more interested in wishing I had been sitting in those conversations. Because they all yeah. sat together and were like, okay, so this thing's assimilating things. How conscious yeah. are these people 
of what's happening to them. And they ended up all deciding and kind of acting in the direction that a fully assimilated human being would not know that they're actually an alien. It's like they're infested on a cellular level. So until they actually mutate and change and, and monster out, they still think they're people. So that's yep. like, oh, oh, that's fun. And it really kind of changes the way you approach some of them. Yeah, they really dug into yeah. it. Yeah, because none of that's specified in the script. So that's all oh. stuff they fleshed out on their own. And that's how you know you have a good cast. Hell yeah. Yeah. Part of the storytelling. It's, it reminds me of the severance debate, you know, with the different actors having method actors and you know, old school pros who just show up and you give them a script and they hit it. And, but everybody's going to get to their power differently, you know? Yep. So, yeah, like going back to just kind of the overall construction film, you know, we talked about the sound, we talked about the great cast and just circle back a little bit. We touched a little bit on the creature stuff earlier and Rob Bottin and all that work just to begin with. But it's one of the things that's still striking about it. So, like, again, I didn't grow up on this. So one of the things that really strikes me is is how effective I, I find the movie now because, you know, I'm coming into it with no sense of nostalgia, nothing like that. And everything with this movie just clicks just the overall pacing of it. It just feels like the editing and the pacing of the scenes, everything is just feels so precise, which is interesting considering they had to change a bunch of stuff on the fly due to, again, some set pieces being too expensive and they had to come up with, you know, plot fixes and whatnot, which I guess is relatively common, but it came up quite a bit on this film. But in terms of the, the, the makeup of works, and like, this movie is still disgusting. Yes. <laughs> it is. It is still it is so visceral. It's like I've had in my notes It's one of the most visceral movies I think of. And, and on a lot of levels, but it's just <laughs> the work by Rob Poteen, you know, which like you mentioned earlier, he didn't want him to light it. And he, here's this amazing work. Don't put any light on it. It's one of those movies where the design work is so effective. It's like, I, I feel like I can smell it almost. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the, the, that the visuals on it are that striking. And buoyed, of course, by Wilfred Brimley's oh, points in the film. But yeah, it, it's really impressive. It's speaking of that, I mean, like Botine put so much work into this. So two things. One, he actually worked himself into exhaustion. That he had to be carted off the set and Sam Winston had to finish up some of the work because he was just like basically living on set. He just didn't leave. He worked, he worked, he worked, he passed out. He worked, he worked, he worked. You know, he had his hand all crammed up inside various, you know, prosthetics, just slime dripping down his back. You know, (laughs) he just lived in the moment. And oh my God, it really shows. The one thing he did bring Stan Winston on specifically for was the dog scene. Yeah, because he he had previously done the howling and was like, no more dogs. I'm done. No more (laughs) doing any more dog work. I'm out. You do it. I wash my hands of this. I'll do everything else. No more dogs. I always feel bad when I put a dog in a script because they know that's going to get kicked out (laughs) first. Yeah. And as we've said, this movie series is rough on dogs. Like going back to 1952, man, that's even worse somehow than this one for the dog yeah dogs are such a shorthand i mean like we all think of john wick now but when you look back you see that so many times it's used as this kind of shorthand for love in a way that like you don't you have to explain a a marriage you don't have to explain a connection with the dog it's just there yeah and like you mentioned earlier touching on the primary dog jed this is the the most amazing animal performance i think i've seen in the film 
talking about this movie still being impressive. There's some of those shots I can't believe came out as well as they did. I mean, the big one being, you know, the entrance to the kennel, yes. again, the pacing of you know, getting the dog to move at a specific pace. I straight forward that look inside to side while the camera is, tr is you know, the camera is moving in that initial sequence. And the it's, dog never looks at the camera. Yeah. yeah. It is note perfect. It is, it's still impressive. The so one that we jumps out. Sorry. Uh, I was just gonna, yeah, you, oh, go. you, you go, you go, you go. I was just going to say that the one that jumps out at me as far as the dog is when it slinks into the guy's room and you yeah, see him one. in shadow. Well, that that's was one, one. Of the one. Yeah, they mentioned that as being one because that's a single take of a dog coming down a hall and it the dog is scripted to make stops. It's like, stop here, look here, stop here, look here. And the carpenter said going in, he's like, there's no way, you know, we're going to get this. We're going to have to cobble it together. Like and, four or five takes. Yep. And it's the shadiest you've ever seen a dog look. <laughs> like, you know, that dog is up to stuff. Funny note. So the dog goes into that one room where you assume it's getting its first victim. And John Carpenter didn't want it to be obvious to anyone who the first victim was. So the silhouette you see, the shadow, none of the actors, not a one. They pulled yeah. someone completely different so that you couldn't guess. I was like, oh, nice touch. Oh, that's cool to know because I've been trying to figure out if you could tell from that shadow for years. That's really yep. cool. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say before, it, you know, it, it, this is bringing back a lot of memories. The person I went to go see the double feature with when I saw this in American World from London was this guy. I knew him as Jordy, but now he's a kind of special effects genius, uh, goes by Jordu Shell. And he worked on Avatar. He worked on Aliens versus Predator. Nice. Oh, uh, wow. You can look it up. It's J O R D U and shell with the sea and his basement at his house in east mount Airy was filled with all these like incredible monster sculptures nice i, I wouldn't I, like i would have sleepovers there and i just like i'm not sleeping in the basement man you know because it was it was amazing i mean there were like stuff that was like i mean his hero at the time was rick baker but there was stuff that was just like professional level still and you know like lost touch with him when i was a kid uh he was a couple years older than me and then uh, I just, I knew that like, that guy's got to be still doing stuff. And I looked him up and of course he's worked on so many things that you worked on Hellboy, Men in Black, The Mist, like, you know. Nice. The thing, like, hey, looking at it now, it's yeah. the 2011 thing. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's so wild because like, you know, I ended up getting pinned out of that day and he had, you know, also, he was already there. He already knew and brought me along, but it just had a massive effect, I think on all of us, you know. I have not talked to him in like 35 years. I, I keep meaning to send him a, a fanboy email, but yeah, that, I think <laughs> oh, that's should, why I yeah. appreciated the effects so much too, because he was fixated on them. So he would basically relive those effects, you know, and, and this also, that summer was about ET, you know, like the comparison of this happy alien and this other predator could not have been heavier, but both of them were done in that old physical latex style. But it was just such a heavy contrast. And honestly, between the two, the thing felt like reality. Mm -hmm. And like the ET style that gets copied with Stranger Things and a lot of other ones, it never feels like reality. It's great, but that's not, you know, what it's about. It was scary enough for Nick as a kid, though. <laughs> yeah, I was four when my parents took me to see ET, and I was yeah. fine through most of it until he brought his finger out and it lit up. And I started screaming bloody murder. They had to take me out of the theater. <laughs> and then you were a smart kid. I saw, I saw E.T. at Plymouth Meeting Mall. And by the time I saw it, everybody was talking about it. I mean, it was such a different culture. There was more of a model of culture. Today we have 
you know, incredibly stratified little microcosms. But then it was, you know, the central one. And E.T. was the movie. And I remember being moved by it and excited by it. But it didn't have an impact, you yeah. know, in the way that you, know, you look back and it's like for whatever reason, whatever part of your psychology just connects with different things. But this was, yeah, the one that hit me. I just want to point out real quick that looking at Jordy Shell's IMDb page, Jordy did the creature effects head for the Ramsey character on the Giver, which means he worked alongside previous pod guest, Evil Ted Smith. Nice. So, <laughs> that's fabulous. Oh my gosh, Jordy's IMDb is, this is amazing. No, it's, it's silly. But he was one of those people, he was doing stuff. There's two times growing up that I saw people doing stuff as kids that was so impressive that if the universe did not reward him for it, then it was broken. And one of those times was with Jordy. And then the other time was with The Roots. And I remember seeing The Roots playing out on the street after school at uh, 5th and South in front of Florist uh, busking. And uh, I remember thinking, man, if these guys don't make it out of Philly, none of us are. You know, <laughs> now I want to go back. But, you know, at the time, like that was a feeling. And, you know, both cases, that's what happened. Well, if we ever have them on, we'll let them know you're, uh, hey, you're uh, you, wanting to reconnect. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Call them up. Yeah. Well, let's talk a bit about what you're working on at the moment. So coming up at the end of this month, probably right after this episode comes out, Invisible Things will be out. And you just recently put together a really great video trailer for it that you put out on Twitter. Yeah, I didn't do it. If I had done it, it would not have been good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did the voice though. Yeah, I was about to say, you did the voice work yeah. for it. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. terrific. Yeah, I got another book coming up about, basically they go to the moon Europa and they find a colony there populated by everyone who's been kidnapped by aliens in North America over the last 400 years. Ooh. And um, they go to rescue them. But what they find is it's just not that simple. Like uh, people are like, listen, I got a gorgeous house. My kids are in great schools and you want me to go live in an underpass of the 405, right? So it's kind of about how they, the kind of political dilemma. And the whole mm -hmm. time this is happening, there's a phenomenon that's incredibly dangerous that no one's acknowledging. Because if they acknowledge it, one, they're worried it's going to happen more, but also they just don't know what to do with it. So this massive, horrible thing you know, ends up both affecting their lives in every way and also having this full-time denial of it. And it, which is all this, is, of course, a metaphor. And, and I did not expect, I started this in this July, I think, of 2017. The book I was working on, my computer crashed. Ooh. And uh, I just did not have the energy to repair it, or, like go back and redo it. So I started this other one. I remember I was living in Houston and I was driving around with my daughter. It was like 13 at the time. And I told her, you know, what the idea was. I just had it on the road. I was like, what if this? She was like, dad, that's a horrible idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and she, you know, that form was right. But yeah, and then oddly enough, a couple months later, it was like actual UFOs in the New York Times uh, in December. <laughs> also, a weird thing too, is that the central idea is that people are so partisan and fixed in their ways that they'll even, you know, basically be suicidal rather than admit that their worldview is wrong. And so now everybody thinks I started after the pandemic when the whole thing was actually finished before. I mean, the things that were changed after the pandemic were cosmetic. Way to get proved right in the worst possible way. Yeah, man. I mean, it kind of, when shit like that happens, it makes you like nervous about writing things. I was like, well, I made aliens real. And that were not aliens. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, I love it. You never, like, I think with books, it's kind of like dating. When you look back, on people that you've dated or even been married to or whatever, 
I think you really can't figure out who you actually loved until later. Because some people, you have this intensity with them in the moment. And it's not that that's not a kind of love, but other people leave a mark. Yep. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's almost impossible to tell in that moment which one is which. But the one you're with, hopefully, is the one that you love more than everything. And that's how I feel about it right now. I, I, I enjoy it. So, yeah, we'll see what the universe does. But, I, you know, yeah. I'm not a good promoter, <laughs> by the way. Uh, well, I'm I'm very excited for it. Yeah, it'll be out June 28th. So, yeah, everyone go check that one out. I'm I'm guessing there's not a ton you can say about the the screenwriting, you know, the two series you're working on cuz I don't know if either of them are scheduled to hit this year or not. Uh Manhunter or House of Usher. House of Usher has had some unfortunate delays, but hopefully they're going to work that out. Like the scripts that I saw are just they're so cool. And there's so many smart people involved in it. Nice. And um the other one is wild like um the showrunner for Manhunt is this amazing woman named Monica Belitsky, who mm. it turns out lived about six blocks from me in Mount Airy. Oh, no, nice. exactly. we didn't know each other. She's like, you know, I'm not sure how much she's younger than me, but not like super younger than me. I mean, like I was probably in end of elementary school and she was in the beginning. But uh, yeah, she was the first one that actually I've been trying to get into different rooms for a long time. But I've had my own projects. I've, I've honestly, because of the type of work I do, it's easier for me to sell or option some of my own work than it is for me mm. to get a job like on a show or it yeah. has been in the past. It's, it's changing now, but yeah. And it, like, I think like the same thing with comics, novels are very isolated. You know, you're alone in a room, you have this entire universe in your head. It doesn't matter how many people you tell about it. Usually you don't because it's in flux. It's, it's, with you and now later it, it goes between you and the editor or if you're working with your agent you have readers but for the most part it's a very solitary thing and people who mm. tend to be able to do it uh, productively are people who can handle long periods of solitude or usually it's people who compartmentalize their socialization and their isolation yep. you know like it, the awp associated writing programs is the convention for writers in the states uh, people teach writing and it's a wild convention and in part because a lot of the people there are in isolation mode for most of the time so they come out they party hard you know because they're going to go back into the cave so comics first gave me the opportunity to just talk with other people you know work with other people honestly have other people lift some of the damn weight you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't all on me you know what i mean and uh the other part is just learning new stuff. Like my first novel came out in 2000. Pim was the first novel I had to hit. And that was 2011. First book I had to hit was with Vertigo, Incognito. But that let me kind of just work with the artist, like which I had not done before. So that was cool. And TV is a whole other level as far as collaboration. And as much as people complain about it, like my experience has been really positive overall i mean not, and i say this somebody who's like had a bunch of projects that haven't gone further like um over the years that i've invested in and everything else but i don't know something i guess like at this point i get more fulfillment on a craft level from working with other people like you know the art my art is novel it'll always be that but in the actual construction of the project i just i like working with people a lot more yeah you mentioned working with Monica on Manhunt and she has a hell of a track record recently between working yeah. on Leftovers, Fargo, yeah. and I haven't seen it yet, but I am the night. So I'm really looking forward to, to Manhunt also because I, I didn't 
realize this until reading up on it, but I don't know if it's the whole thing or just a few episodes, but some of Manhunt's being directed by Carl Franklin. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I, um, I, I, that's well, what see, I, at least according to IMDb, I think it was on one of the press releases. Yeah, I mean, I the old model for doing television was that you would start a writing room and the writer's room would get a couple episodes in front of the production and the production would start. And, and the network TV, many shows still do this, right? Where like, you know, you write into episode six and then they start shooting. And so you're keeping the scripts going. So the production is happening while you're doing the work. So the writers mm -hmm. on the show get to get exposed to the production of the actual show. But more and more now, because of the rise of streamers, streamers have a different, most of them, they all have slightly different business models. But most of them that I've dealt with, at least, and, and most of the people I know are dealing with it, you work on a show, everybody's in there like a group. We're all trying to help the showrunner come up with, you know, achieve the best version they can of their vision. But then once the final script is done, and once the script, of the, you know, that version of it is done, I mean, scripts get rewritten up, up until the you know, very last second. But once those scripts are like, these are the scripts that are going to decide whether the show is going to get greenlit or not, once that happens, everybody in the room gets let go except for the showrunner usually. So mm. it was just kind of like scary. I mean, like, like Monica is much braver than I am, so she's fine. But like, I, I would be very, you know, freaked out to have this thing where like, you show up with your crew and then they're like, okay, the fight's starting. And then everybody else turns around and leaves and you're, you know, sitting there alone having to deal with everything. So like, there's this kind of cutoff that happens that didn't have before. And it's actually a, it was an article, I think it was in New York Magazine a couple of weeks ago about it, because it's become problematic because now you have people that go up through the writer's rooms, they get to the point where they can show run and they lack experience of actually doing the show running. And so mm. like in TV, it's not about the director, it's about the head writer. Directors, oftentimes there's a different director every week, yep. but the person who pulls it all together is the head writer. So like, you know, if you get a show that gets greenlit and you have all these episodes, it's kind of like they hand you, you know, say like $10 million an episode for eight episodes. Here's $80 million, you know, make a show. So of course you're hiring people who know how to do that, but at some level you are running a small business yep. that makes millions of dollars. And, you know, even though like the bills are getting paid by other people and there's all this other accounting, you are making decisions on where are we spending the money? Are we spending everything on the star? Are we spending it on this location? What are we cutting out of the script? What costs what? You know, like that was one of the things that I'm always fascinated with. Like things, some things I think are very expensive are not. And some things I think are cheap are totally not, right? So like, it's kind of wild. We're cut out. So I like on these projects, I was there and I had fun. I had a lot of fun. But I, when they come out, it'll be new to me. You know, I'm basically, okay. my, my thing as a writer is I'm looking at my script. I know what episode I did. And I know it's going to get completely rewritten. I mean, it already has. <laughs> But I'm hoping like a couple sentences just make it through, right? You know, like a couple good dialogue lines. So like I get updates on the new versions of the script. And I'm like, okay, do it. is this sentence still there? You know, but yeah, it's a different kind of thing. And that's part of why they were able to make as much content as they are, because in many ways, it's more economic for an individual show. It's probably definitely not more economic overall, because more shows are going to fail because you have people, it's their first day on the job and they're the CEO. But on those individual shows, yeah, that's what happens. Cool. No, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping a lot of your dialogue gets through. <laughs> yeah, because I am excited for Manon. I, I was particularly excited by Carl Franklin. No joke. I was just telling my co-host two days ago. I just got this 
uh, this is an After Dark Neo Noir box set that I got imported oh, wow. specifically because it has the, the, the first time on Blu-ray One False Move from oh, Carl wow. Franklin. And also at the time this goes up, the Criterion Blu-ray for uh, Devil in a Blue Dress will be coming up in mid-July. So that'll be coming up quick as far as a, yeah. another Carl Franklin one. So Before we roll out, I just want to say for when we do each of these episodes, when we record, I try to wear something that's related to the film. And I, I own almost nothing that's related to any of these films. So it's always Got a little my Erica Henderson thing shirt on. <laughs> and I was Previous thinking, case. well, all right, this was released 40 years ago. Uh, and I tried to not think about that too much. But it occurred to me that it came out about three months or right around the same time as the NBA finals that year. And it was the Sixers happened to lose those finals. And we're recording this while the game one of the, the current NBA finals is going on. It's like, well, maybe I can try some mojo because right after that is when the Sixers got Moses Malone. And then they won the next year. So I wore I wore a Moses Malone T-shirt. Nice. Oh. Three months after this movie came out is when the Sixers got him. And I figured, all right, we'll try to generate some mojo for the Sixers next year with the podcast. So I just thought I'd throw all that right, out there knowing you're a Sixers fan. That's now. a good one. Yeah. That's what I thought was going to happen when they got hard. And I was like, it's Malone all over It again. still might. It still might. The still hamstring might could be. have been the reason. That's what I'm, I'm holding out hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm old. It might just be getting old. Like yeah. when you hear somebody who's like, he was great in the first half, but he barely scored in the last quarter because yeah, he's old. You know, he was I tired. can do everything. Listen, as an old person, I'm 51 now. As an old person, I can do everything I could when I was 20. I can just do it for an eighth of the time yes. and then not again for three yes. weeks. You know what I mean? Like that's how, that's how it works. That's, I was, that's I was very about, accurate. Yeah. I was talking about that at work, actually. I was like, you know, I still get, you know, muscle strains and pulls like I did when I was young. The problem is I do it now just by sitting. <laughs> get out of bed. Yeah. I sat up in bed and pulled my back and I was on the road too. And I had to check out of my hotel, which is the worst. But yeah. But you know, it, the cool thing, the landing with the films again, I we talk about the old monsters. I remember there was a big promotion in Philly that they were going to have Creature of the Black Lagoon in 3D. And nice. the only way you could get the 3D glasses to watch it was to go to, I think, Burger King and get the glasses. So in West Miami, there was, no, there was no Burger King. There was one way over uh, Cheltenham, which was like, for me, was about an hour walk. So me and my buddy walked all the way to Cheltenham to go get the glasses. They were, of course, sold out. So we walked all the way back. And then I ended up holding up a red shirt to my eye and, and a green shirt to my eye, <laughs> and hoping that would kind of work, which like, wasn't the stupidest idea, but like, did not uh, work. And, uh, yeah. And, and it turned out later, there was one scene that was 3D. It was like some goldfish. Uh, like, that was it. The whole movie. Like, I thought it was going to be like VR. You know, it was going to be this whole thing. But like, yeah, I mean, the cool thing about it being old is seeing the evolution of these things and seeing, you know, the other thing is an artist too, like you said, this was one of the most hated movies initially when it came out and like seeing how our perception of things change over time and like okay. whose argument like wins. And like, you know, sometimes people compliment me on some of my work and they're like, oh, you're ahead of your time. Well, being ahead of your time sucks. You know what I mean? Like, be, <laughs> yep. No, you're not supposed to be ahead of your time. It's like going to clap on a song and you hit it right before everybody else does. It doesn't have the same thing. But the cool part about time is just watching these sort of progressions and all the way through and, and being able to look at them all together. And then things a good example of that for better and for worse, like what has happened to this franchise over the years. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Uh, Matt, anything else you'd like to plug? No, I'm not good at plugging. Like, uh, <laughs> has anybody ever like you listen to i love i mean i wanted to just talk to you guys and this was i had a ball so thank you for oh, for thank, excellent. thank you for coming thank you on enough. yeah yeah but like as far as like has anybody listened to one of these things like you know what i've got to spend 29.99 on a novel i know three things about no <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean the best that can happen is somebody gets the novel somehow like down the road and they go oh wait a minute i heard this guy yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but yeah, I, if somebody accidentally picks up the novel someday, uh, you know, I was that guy. Well, thanks for being thank that you. guy on our show. Yeah, we appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you. We can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. All right. Once again, big thanks to Matt Johnson for coming on the pod. That was so much fun. Thank you, Matt. I love that dude. Like Matt mentioned, he doesn't really want to promote his own work. So I will just stress on his behalf. Please, please, please go check out his work. Invisible Things will be the most recent one. But like we mentioned before, Jake and I are big comics folks. His work with Vertigo is fabulous. And I think his first one was the Papa Midnight series he did with artist Tony Akins, inker Dan Green. And it's you know it's a tie into John Constantine. Constantine appears in it. So for anyone who's you know, familiar with that character, it's a phenomenal five issue mini so please check out his work but yeah i was just so excited to get to chat with him on the pod that was absolutely wonderful that was a really good time and it's fun to have another actual sixers fan on that was uh i enjoyed that we got to commiserate a little bit you get to feel not alone (laughs) yeah so speaking of something we were talking about before we went to break too talking about this movie being a big deal like this recording was a big deal for me because yeah this is this is a top three for me is normally I mean, that's awfully specific having three and, you know, but it's generally speaking over time. That's what I kind of ironed out my three go to's were, which is this and the innocence, this and the innocence. Yep. Yes. And we'll leave the third one a mystery, but we will hopefully be doing it later this year because it's not on Blu-ray at the moment, but it should be soon. And my plan is to do it when it hits Blu-ray because it theoretically should be coming this year. but. The Conjuring 4? Yeah, it's Conjuring 4. <laughs> he, Jake's so good at this game. <laughs> or 3? I guess 3 was the most recent Conjuring one? I don't actually even know. Whatever. No, Jake, you must have missed the announcement about the Shout Factory 3-disc Devil's Pass Special Edition. That's <laughs> <laughs> I'd buy it. I would too! I own the thing! <laughs> Man, the stuff I've bought for this pod. That's it's it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, the top three horror movies, because this is certainly, you know, one of those er horror movies that a lot of horror fans will talk about as being, you know, where they develop their love of horror or something that they watch, you know, regularly. Matt talked about watching it every year, and I, I think he's probably not alone in that. You know, for my my wife, one of those would be American Werewolf in London, which Matt didn't think held up, but you know, <laughs> it was another big one for her. But I don't, I honestly don't know what my top three would be. That's something I'd, I'd have to think about. I know this wouldn't be in it, unfortunately, because I'm a bad horror fan, apparently. And I, I don't, I don't even, I don't dislike this movie. I was so excited that we had a, you know, like, well, we got a special guest who's a Sixers fan on the movie. I know Jake is not as hot on his knicker <laughs> but. I don't know. When it comes to trying to think of like my favorite horror movies, it's just I, my brain is immediately flooded with too many options. It's like, even what are you looking for with horror? It's like one of my first questions. Like, 
a better question for me would be like, what's your favorite body horror, beastie horror? What's your favorite slow burn horror? You know, those things elicit more. My answer to all of those is Paranormal Activity 4. <laughs> but, you know, it's I can't even begin to narrow it down to an actual top three for myself. Like, I can give you some things that pop out in categories, but that's it. Yeah. It, so I'll go ahead and mention it. I, I think I've probably mentioned on previous episodes, but so the, my third one is cure. Kiyoshi Kurosawa's cure. So good. So I mentioned that now, because if you look at the, you know, the, the innocence, the thing and cure, we won't get into too much detail on, on cure, but you, you can very much see a trend between them, which is they are all, you know, I talked in our conversation with Matt about, how I get very particular about the use of score in horror movies. And they're both films that have relatively minimal score, very slow pacing. And that are all about this very deliberate, constant escalation of tension. And good God is cure an example of that. Yep. So there's certainly tonal similarities. And I, I love all ends of horror, you know, from the quiet, I, I do like the bombastic ones too. I like shock. I like all that stuff. But as far as the stuff that I would put like at the top where, where I get very particular about stuff where I, I just think everything clicks. And this is one of those we touched on a little bit in our chat with Matt, but it's one of the things I think is so fascinating. And again, this is not a movie I grew up on. And I think it's because so many people who cited as their favorite, it's one that they saw when they were young. And so I'm coming into this knowing its reputation, but coming into it with relatively you know newish eyes from 2011 or whenever it was or I saw it. Good God, just for me, everything clicks so well. It's just the, again, it's, this movie is so excellent at just having this constant elevation of tension. I mean, the first thing you have is dead silence. And then even the score you get over the opening is just a single electronic chord and it just slowly seeps into the soundtrack. And then you get just the sound of the wind. And then it, and everything from there is just, slow burn there's a few jump scares in this just a handful you know and, and one incredibly effective one that i think is still great which is obviously the blood test um, i should also mention <laughs> depending on what we named this episode there's a second one. Oh yeah there's more than one but that's that's a big one I, I, my, my favorite my favorite nah my favorite has to be uh when they're in, in the generator room and the boards just start flying oh yeah 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 it's, yeah it's funny because that sequence was meant to be much more involved than it was. So in the original script, the original Bill Lancaster script, there were a couple of sequences that were kind of significantly different. The big one, well, the finale is a big one, but, but kind of the, the bigger one was Benning's death. Benning's death was originally very different. Maybe we'll get into that later, but it was the finale in the original script was you know, like uh, they chasing the thing around and fucking McCready is in the, the snow plow and just like barreling through the complex, trying to, you know, chase this thing down, run into it. And he, he blows it up with dynamite again. But so it was this extended sequence in the movie. They had pared it down to what we got in the generator, but there was supposed to be a bit more with the, the creature that comes out. So what comes out from the ground is the Blair thing hybrid and it has the, you know, the hole that opens in the chest and the dog comes out. Originally, the dog was supposed to, like, come all the way out and, like, leap at McCready. Oh. And it was all going to be done as stop motion. In fact, the scene that precedes the beastie coming up is 
one of my more amusing things, which is the tentacles coming up and it's a stop motion sequence of it. Yep. Padding around, like, like looking for the, the dynamite plunger. And it's like, Oh, got it. Yoink. And pulls it down. <laughs> that was all stop motion. And the sequence after it was going to be this extended stop motion sequence. And they did a test of it. And the determination was, it just doesn't look right. And they think part of the problem with it, they mentioned was, the fact that there's, you know, all the fire elements that are in around there, which makes stop motion even more difficult to have consistent lighting. And it just kind of took away from the realism of it. I think it was the right move because honestly, that one stop motion moment stood out. Like, it does. I, I yes. caught it right away. And I'm so glad they didn't lean into it. Yeah, I'm fine with just the big close up of the big static, you know, uh, Robotine Wilford Brimley Beastie. <laughs> I think that's part of why it's never like I. Again, I don't dislike it by any stretch. I, it just doesn't, you know, the practical effects, while very you know, impressive, and I understand why people like them, they're not like that kind of gore and special effect and beastie stuff. Just doesn't, it just doesn't hit me the same way. I guess I've never been in love with, you know, the, those kind of of monsters and stuff. I, again, not saying they're bad. Not saying I think they're dumb or anything like that. It just they don't hit me the same way that other stuff in horror does. So this one. I, you know, I love the performances. I like the tension in the film, as you mentioned, the score, the sound. It just in the end, the monsters just leave me personally a little bit cold while it's still being impressive. Again, that's not I'm not insulting them. Like, I don't think yeah. this is a bad movie. I'm not, you know, that that horrible a person that big a horror grump. But uh, the monsters, not why you show up, though. Right. And I enjoy the rest of it. I mean, I don't hate the monster stuff or anything, you know, by any stretch. It's just for whatever reason, the movie just isn't isn't all the way there for me, but I, I, I think I just like supernaturally stuff more than alieny stuff. If that makes sense. Oh uh, well, yeah. We've mentioned before. I'm a, I'm a bit of a space horror nut, so that could play into Hell it. Yeah. It's, it's funny. That was, they, they talk on, I might've mentioned this in our discussion with Matt, but there's the commentary on the shout factory disc by Stuart Cohen, which again, I'm stressing it because they don't mention it's on the Blu-ray. If you look at the back of the Blu-ray, it's not mentioned as a feature. It's just there when you put the disc in. So I almost passed it by, but there's so much interesting information. And one of the interesting bits of information is they're talking about the finished poster, which I literally have hanging above me. I have a series of movie posters, but ones directly above me are three of my favorite movies, or I'm sorry, five of my favorite movies, because I got two posters below them. And it's The Conversation, The Thing, Kurosawa's Ron, Sweet Smell of Success, and The Devils. Actually, I guess if you count The Devils as a horror movie, that would be, I guess I have to go to four. If you count The Devils, which I probably would count it. But anyway, so I'm looking at the Drew Struzan poster for The Thing, which is pretty iconic. Fucking Eric's favorite movies are so much more classy than mine. Wow. Holy shit. <sighs> well, to, all right, I got to have something not classy. Uh, see, uh, no, these are all pretty good. My favorite movie is Gross Point Blank. I mean, it's good. You know, beautiful girls and like almost famous like they're all good movies but they're we're not talking about like kurosawa here <laughs> kurosawa some good stuff this is not an insult eric is much smarter and better than me is what i'm saying so no 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 <laughs> but the, that drew struzan poster for the thing is pretty iconic at this point but the yeah. tagline for it above it is the ultimate in alien terror and so you mentioned the space element of it and they mentioned originally they had another gentleman on to do the design work for it and I, I don't know where I wrote his name down in my notes, so apologies. Uh, but he had much more of a minimalist design for it. And the original 
teaser trailer for this. If anyone's ever seen it, it's actually a pretty effective teaser with just the camera moving through the ice and talking about scientists of Earth or something. The guy who did the original ad campaign before they brought on Drew Struzan is the guy who did the ad campaign for Alien. Nice. And he came up with the tagline, in space, no one can hear you scream. And his original tagline for the thing was, man is the warmest place to hide. I love and so that. So that was wow. the original thing poster was just the logo. And then the tagline, man is the warmest place to hide. And then one of the studio things was, no, get rid of that. And they, and they did the Drew Struzan poster. That's a shame. And, and when you got, you know, cool looking poster and then the ultimate in alien terror, it's like, yeah, I wish they had kind of go. It's very alien. -y, you know, man is the warmest place to hide, but it's good. So now the poster they ended up with, if I recall correctly, is basically just a man in a jacket and like the light streaming from his face area. Yep. And I remember reading uh, Carpenter hated it. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> hated it because again, he was actively trying to get away from the man in a suit type of horror. And here was this guy in a suit. He's like, you might as well put a knife in his hand. <laughs> Carpenter was not impressed. It's, but it's such an iconic thing. And you know, and the way the thing is taken right from the, the way it's displayed in the 1952 movie, yep. the thing portion is written, which is cool. I didn't realize that until I saw the movie. Yeah, I think that's so cool that it holds up. Again, talking about almost the carryover, it's oh, I love it. It's I mean, they changed the sound element of it, but it's verbatim the font and the same basic you know, rhythm of which it dissolves. They talk a little bit on the making of about how they did it by like you know burning trash bags and stuff so the light comes through. That shit still works. You know, it's funny to talk about how iconic it is just as a film and as an image. I happened to be in Target today and walking around, I, I looked at the toy section and they had a bunch of horror figures and one of them was McCready. Nice. From the thing, you know, it's oh, one of nice. those high end ones, but you know, with the boxes that pop open and you know, there's 80 different accessories, you know, high end stuff. I didn't buy it cause I don't have any money, but you know, it's and the thing is right there with like Freddie and Pennywise. And it's, it's interesting to think, of all these horror icons, but the thing, like, you know, it's, it's just Kurt Russell's characters. What this, the, like, there's no one single, like iconic, like there's no, you know, nobody calls the monster, you know, Pennywise, you know, nope. it doesn't have its name. So it's, it's the whole movie itself that's iconic rather than a character or an element from it. And that, that's a little bit like, I guess like the shining to a degree, although that's probably more famous for Nicholson. Yeah. But in terms of just the element of it being, you know, the entirety of it being the iconic thing uh, rather than Michael Myers or something like that is kind of interesting. And, and not a lot of those are like that. Because you wouldn't say Kurt Russell and McCready is the iconic thing from this movie. He's just not. I mean, he's good, but. Yeah, I, I was about to say he he's absolutely, you know, the central character of it. He's clearly the standout hero, but. Who drives so much of the plot forward, particularly in the back half. But yeah, for all that Kurt Russell is ostensibly the star of the film, that was one of the things I find so interesting about it is, again, the script treats McCready the same way it treats everybody in terms of its approach. Like we, we talked again about how they stripped the script down to just the bare essentials and just very naturally flowing dialogue done by great actors. But so there is no scene of like McCready stopping and saying, you know, oh, I remember growing up, my mom makes spaghetti, you know, blah, 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 you know, some random anecdote to tie into some weird, broader thematic element. And that stuff is great. It can be fantastic, but it's just, I use that as an example of 
you know, this film, it doesn't treat McCready any differently than any, everything else. Everything is just so, so spare. Although it's funnily enough, there was a slight McCready subplot that was cut from the original script, which is in the original script, in addition to his ongoing duel with the chess wizard computer, uh, which he replaces after he fries the first one, he gets another one put in. He also has a recurring thing with a blow up doll, which he, <laughs> he is blowing up a blow up doll. And at one point he finally blows it up and props it up in a chair and he talks to it and he uses the chess wizard as the doll's voice. He's like, all right, talk to me, baby. And Queen to Rook five. <laughs> and, and I mentioned that because it becomes a set piece at one point, because there's the sequence in this film where McCready and Nalls go off to go, you know, go off looking and, exp- and it's the one where Nalls comes back and says, I think McCready's one of them. I had to cut his line. All of that shit was shown in the Bill Lancaster draft. They show him going in there. And so it was actually used for a jump scare because Nalls is in there and all of a sudden he sees something move on the ceiling that the light shifts. He freaks out and there's this blow up doll that's floating <laughs> up. He's like, what the fuck? <laughs> that's amazing. And I'm very glad they cut it. I'm very yeah. glad they cut it. Most of the changes were were good. The one I missed was the original Death for Bennings, which I won't read the whole thing. Again, the, the script for this isn't hard to find if you want to go look it up. But what I'll just mention real quick is the original Death for Bennings. So Bennings, if you haven't seen the film in a while, Bennings is the character who, you know, the Balding character who is left alone with the carcass. And then Windows comes back in and sees that Bennings is, you know, his bloody body with these tentacles moving all over it. He goes to get help, comes back in. Bennings is missing. They see the window's been busted out and they track down Bennings in the snow and he raises up his hands and he has the deformed hands. He does the big wailing scream, you know, which is another iconic moment from the movie. And then they torch him. Originally, there was more of a plot point based around the dogs. Like originally when the kennel opens, you see there's a couple of the dogs that get out. A couple of the dogs get loose from the compound. And they decide they need to go and track down these dogs because they could be infected because they spell out. There's a little more concrete stuff about how the thing operates. Not much, but a little bit. But like they estimate how much time it takes for it to fully assimilate. They, they estimate it takes like two hours. And so they use that at different points. But when they think someone might be contaminated that, all right, it hasn't been two hours, so we can't tell, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things they mention is that they think that ingesting any portion of this thing it instantly corrupts you which you can infer from the finished film but also they mention they have to go track these dogs down because these dogs were fighting for their lives when this thing attacked them and it stands to reason that they would have bit it ergo it's infected them so we just we have to assume the dogs are infected and go track them down so it's bennings and mccready and i forget who the third character is it goes with them it might be childs but they all get on snowmobiles and they all go track down the dogs and they find one of the dogs has been eaten. And then they find the other dog, which is half transformed into a thing. But as they're going to approach that dog and they've got flamethrowers and thermite grenades and shit like that, all of a sudden Bennings is pulled down into the ice where there's a portion of the thing that has gone underneath the snow and has grabbed him from behind and basically yoinks him down until he's just a head and arms like flailing. And then they gets the rest of him pulled down and then he pops up whack-a-mole style all around the area because it's pulling uh, him around underground and he keeps like ah! pops up yelps and gets pulled back down and pops oh, up nice. yelps and gets pulled back down and they talk about how they started building the set for it they couldn't do it outdoors because of the complexity so they had to build an elevated set 
so that he could go underneath and, and pop up. And so they'd started working on it and it, it was just going to be too expensive. So they scrapped it. But I, I like the Bennings bit just fine. But it's one of those things I was like, oh, that was kind of a fun set piece, especially the way they describe it. That would be nice. And it would have been interesting. But yeah, there's there's not much in in like that that was cut that the original script is, I think, is is quite good. But pretty much all the changes to it, again, are just paring it down, making it more concise, making it more efficient, and all of which I think work to its advantage. Uh, one thing I'll mention, Jake, is you, I know you know it's not your favorite John Carpenter film, but I would say, do you like the comic connection that it has? Yes. Okay, yay. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Fake it till you make it. There's a bunch of people who worked on it from a design standpoint, but one of the main illustrators for it was Mike Plug. No shit. Yep. Well, that's cool. So Mike Plug, who worked on a bunch of Marvel comics, it, it kind of in this vein, he worked on Frankenstein, Man-Thing, yeah. Werewolf by Night, did Conan, but also worked in movies a lot starting in the late 70s. Uh, anyone who's seen Ralph Bakshi's Wizards, which is the first one I think of because that was the first time I saw his art, was growing up, I watched Wizards. And there's the narration by Susan Terrell, who we talked about in Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. She does the opening voiceover, but it's over these pencil sketches and they're all done by Mike Plug. And he also worked on Heavy Metal, Little Shop of Horrors. And I didn't realize this until just kind of looking through his IMDb. He was the character designer on The Black Cauldron. So no kidding. Nice. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I didn't know he worked in film. That's really pretty interesting. I didn't know he certainly didn't know. Maybe he did the matte painting for the uh, the flying saucer in that one scene. Uh, oh, and the but yeah, I don't know who did the uh, did the matte paintings. There are interviews with the folks who uh, it's a couple who made the actual prop that's used in the opening and how it's you know, made of parts of it are brass and whatnot. And they show them that the shit still works like they plug it in and you see the light start going around it. So I, it's funny. Those are the, the only two notes I have. We have discussed it. I love matte paintings in films. Love them. Like that just gives me such a warm, fuzzy, happy feeling, you know, probably from like Indiana Jones or whatever. But, you know, seeing that, I was like, oh, matte paintings. I miss those so much. Now it's all CGI <laughs> soullessness. And this one's good, too. Like, yeah, I mean, it is. There's the the new remaster that was done of it is, again, gorgeous. But in all the the upscaling and all the remastering, again, we were talking about the practical effects and that they still look great. But that yep. matte painting still looks fantastic. And so... So much of it is has held up in the way they they've presented everything. My other note, it's it's just forever weird to me that this movie starts with that flying saucer entering the Earth's atmosphere. It's a little hokey. Because it's just, <laughs> just you know, and that may be a callback to the fifties movie specifically or something, but it just feels so out of place with everything else in this film. What I find particularly fun about it is so it's you know, the the ship comes into frame, you know, you're initially looking at space. And, you know, this thing comes into frame and then whizzes by and then dips into the atmosphere. It's all wobbly. Yeah, it's wobbly. But there's, aside from it kind of wobbling a little, and because they can only do so much with it being, you know, a physical prop, there's not much indication that it's damaged. So it's just kind of... <laughs> you watch it it's drunk like, ass aliens. aliens it was the aliens just that planet came out of nowhere because <laughs> <And laughs> the script specifies oh we can see that there's sparks and that there's damage on it and it's like in the fifth one nope he's just trashed and just, okay oh, so this brings up a question why is it a size of the city no, in no, no, no. version stop that <laughs> <laughs> is the thing a kind of xenomorph 
imitation virus that was affecting the aliens on the ship or was the ship belonging to the virus? And it's a good question because underneath the tool shed, he's building a fucking UFO. Oh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which was so weird. I have to admit that that's one of the parts I feel is most out of place with the whole thing. It's you know, like, well, if you wanted to get out of the snow and go find someplace warm, you'd build a ship. And if the only ship design, you know, is flying saucers, you're going to build a little flying saucer. No, I get it, but that's the point, though. Is like, is it is this imitation virus that just kind of like imitates its host, and they don't know it until it freaks the fuck out and eats other ones and makes more of itself, or is it actually have an agenda, and it knows how to build goddamn saucers? You know, it's. Like, it's I, it's, I assume it's that just because I like the the concept of this amorphous, you know, nondescript thing that you know gives single-minded beings down to the cellular level that it's like needs to build a flying saucer that that's its preferred mode of transport (laughs) that just uh, that amuses me i would say i hadn't i mean i just considered it you know the alien was the one who built the ship and this is just what it is in part because again in the 50s one it it is a single alien pilot with a distinct you know he's there to take over the world and then in the 2011 one it's a little little less thing, but the original kind of the, the designs for that, there was going to be a pilot and they were going to show the pilot of the ship in, in that one. And it was going to be a different kind of, you know, different look to the alien. So I, I think the intent has always been that the alien that was flying that ship is, you know, is there to, to assimilate and take over. That would have been another interesting alien touch. I mean, alien being the 1979 Ridley Scott. You know, with yeah. the the engineer with the hole in him and stuff. Yeah. Well, that it was going to be a uh, sort of an homage to Most that. Most of that. Yeah, 2011 one. And the the 2011 one is just an homage and remake of a bunch of other things. So I'm surprised they didn't do it. I do have one more complaint. They originally had on the casting list a woman who I believe was injury uh, was unable to make it, and so they replaced her with a man, which means the movie completely fails the Becknell test with not a single woman on the cast whatsoever. Yeah, the the original has more women in it than this one. Yep. So, definitely a shortcoming. If you listen to Carpenter, that was by design. I mean, there was probably, like you mentioned, there was probably someone at some point in the script. It was scripted that way. Not in the draft I read, but probably prior to that. But according to Carpenter, he was... He thought it was more interesting to, he was like, yeah, the, the original one had women in it. He said, I thought it would be, I, I hadn't seen a, very many films at the time that would be all men trapped in a situation like that. And I thought, you know, the psychology of that and how that would play in. So it, was, it sounded like it was something, it, it was a deliberate choice. And correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a while since I've seen it. But in, in the 2011 one, it's all men except Mary Elizabeth Winstead, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we might have to, we might have to do that. <laughs> so because there's any time, I'm I'm yeah I'm thinking because there's there's a connection in between it and another movie we're about to do, which you say is the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. There's a connection there. They both share the same writer or one of the writers, Eric Heiserer. The Elm Street remake has two screenwriters or two credited ones, but but also there's interesting things to talk about in both films in terms of how they approach their respective franchises that could be interesting. So we might have to do that. Look, we could pair it with uh, my actual favorite version of this story, which is the ice episode of X-Files, which I also watched in prep for this. Nice. Now was that was, 
it's been ages since I saw it. So refresh my we might have talked about it when we did the Twilight Zone episode that Benson and Moorhead did because it was up. it was a Glenn Morgan episode if I remember correctly. Yep. Yeah, it's the one where where Mulder and Scully go to uh, well, it's the Arctic in that because the whole base stopped responding. It's you know we're not who we are. Video comes out and they go up with the uh, three other people. You know they're not sure who's been taken over by these aliens well the worms theoretical aliens the yeah. worms in it it's a worm infestation yeah you know and it, it's even got the you know the blood test in it where they you know you test the two worms to see if you know they're gonna fight and i i just i happen to watch it because you know any excuse to watch that it's one of my favorite episodes so and i like that it tied into all this because it felt it really felt like four versions of essentially the same story with different you know emphasis and different characters and uh if I had to rate them personally, it would be Ice, The Thing, The Thing 2011, and then the 1952 one. But they're all pretty close. Like, I enjoyed all of them, I'd have to say. But uh, circling back real quick to the Mike Plouge stuff real quick, because that reminds me. One thing we haven't gotten to yet is the production rundown. I got some uh, base production here for you. So first off, this is 1982's The Thing, as we discussed. Directed by John Carpenter, who I have a, whenever I find someone I really like, I just start ranting. So we have The Fog, Halloween, Escape from New York, They Live, Christine, Big Trouble, Little China, Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness, and Vampires. What a lineup. Oh my God, I love this man. (laughs) I recently discovered there's a couple movies he wrote, but didn't direct that I want to look into. Like I was aware of... Eyes of Laura Mars, which he wrote but didn't direct, which I hadn't seen. But apparently there's one called Black Moon Rising, which is an action thriller with Tommy Lee Jones that I guess Carpenter was going to direct at some point. And the reason I mention it is it shares an editor with this movie who you're about to get to. But all right, there's also something else related to the writer who I'm guessing you're going to do next. Yes. Bill Lancaster, who wrote, you know, all things Bad News Bears. <laughs> wrote the original didn't write bad news bears in training which was written by paul brickman who wrote risky business which has come up on the pod before yes it has <laughs> but then he came back for the bad news bears go to japan so i have to assume he had to write the ship in terms of the bad news <laughs> bears franchise and also was burt lancaster's son as the you know last name implies yep but also what i didn't realize was i never knew that john carpenter was supposed to direct Firestarter. Hmm. and that would have been amazing the thing basically threw a wrench into that and it didn't end up panning out but the original draft of john carpenter's version of firestarter was written by bill lancaster and which i found a copy of that draft so i i have never seen firestarter neither the original nor the new one that came out i really want to do it because of who did direct it just to have an excuse to do a mark lester movie on this podcast because for those who don't know, Mark Lester directed Commando, so <laughs> I, I Commando. am fascinated to see what that movie is like. I I would be down for Firestarter. We can pair that and do the the original. We can do a four piece. We'll do Poltergeist, Old and New, and Firestarter, Old and New. Yeah, that'd be great. Oh dear God, no! The new Poltergeist is so bad. <laughs> I liked it. Yeah, that's because you didn't see the original. That may be, but I still liked it. That'll be a whole episode theme, which is Shrug. I liked it. And then it'll be The Thing, 2011. It'll be The Poltergeist. Remake. I liked it. Shrug. 
Sounds like cabaret. Dee 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 dee. Jake likes it. <laughs> I told you I had bad taste, man. We all did a whole bit on that a few minutes ago. <laughs> Edited by Todd C. Ramsey, who worked on Escape from New York, The Exorcist 3. Oh, dear God, yes. And Star Trek The Motion Picture. Star Trek The Motion Picture was his first job as a full editor. He was an assistant on Lipstick and the Car, and then his first full editing job was Star Trek The Motion Picture. Oh, that was a kind of a big job for someone right out of the gate i was impressed hell yeah yeah especially since the one shot is 45 minutes long <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of a cushy gig yeah edit <laughs> cinematography by dean cundy yeah halloween the fog escape from new york big trouble little china back to the future one two and three project x personal love of mine hook death becomes her and jurassic park wow dude gets around yeah dean cundy's amazing he's one of the first names that a lot of folks think of when you think of cinematographers i didn't realize still looking into this he did the human tornado the rudy ray moore movie so that's awesome and he had kind of shifted over to primarily doing comedies but now he's kind of getting back into genre stuff because i did see as i was watching book of boba fett on disney plus he was the dp on some of those episodes so i was so nice. excited to see his name come up special makeup effects by rob botine who worked on robocop seven total recall Legend and the Howling. I, I like Botine. He's got some good work there. And of course, Stan Winston, the man, who did uh, makeup effects as well on Aliens, Terminators 1, 2, 3, and 4, Friday the 13th, Parts 2 and 3, and Something Wicked This Way Comes. Nice. Music was by Ennio Morricone, who also uh, worked on A Fistful of Dollars, The Untouchables, The Hateful Eight, and Wolf. It is worth noting that he was trying to emulate Carpenter's style to a degree, but it was not appreciated to the point where he was actually nominated for a Razzie. Oh, I didn't know the Razzie bit. Um, yeah. It's funny, though, because there were unused bits from the thing that ended up getting used in Hateful Eight, which he won an yeah. Oscar for. <laughs> That's about right. Look, he did the Untouchable score, so he should have just won best score for like five years running. Yeah, I Morricone is amazing it's for for I mean for folks I mean, obviously we, we know his his western cred. My favorite score of his is is the Great Silence, the the western he did with Sergio Corbucci. But there's also Bird with Crystal Plumage with Argeno, Nice Lizard in a Woman's Skin with Lucio Fulci. You mentioned that uh, we had uh, the editor worked on Exorcist Three. Morricone worked on Exorcist Two, The Heretic. So nice. Also worked on a movie called The Island which I came across while prepping for this. There's another connection to the island. Uh, I can't remember what it is, but we might need to talk about the island at some point because the island is directed by Michael Ritchie, who directed Digstown. Oh, <laughs> welcome to Digstown. Apparently, I guess it's has a very bad reputation. Apparently, the first trivia bit I saw, I, I didn't look at the full IMDb trivia, but the top one is, to this date, Michael Caine refuses to discuss this movie. So, <laughs> which just makes me want to see it more. But Absolutely. Yeah, fucking Michael Ritchie. And finally, we are produced and distributed by Universal, who worked on Mama, Oblivion, and The Hunt. And in fact, this is one of the few Universal movies that does not start with the uh, globe opening, because they didn't want to get confused with the uh, the UFO landing. Should have gone with the globe opening. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad they didn't. But <laughs> Same. I just, I, again, I'm very particular on the, the start of films and just, oh man, that just, just the text on a... Dead silence on a blank screen. Ah. 
works so well. Very well done. That synth chord that opens it just seeps in so mm. well. And it's funny, you would think, you going back to the score with Ennio Morricone, you would, like a lot of folks assume, kind of like you mentioned, a lot of the synth stuff was Carpenter. Some of it was, but some of it was actually Ennio Morricone. It's, he did this hybrid, because apparently, according to Carpenter, he started, Morricone started as, you know, kind of an experimental composer, and he had familiarity and had fiddled with synth kind of similar to Carpenter. So it wasn't... Uh, him doing stuff in synth wasn't completely foreign to him. So, hmm. but yeah, thank you for doing the production rundown, Nick. Appreciate it. My pleasure, as always. Sorry, we did it at the tail end rather than the beginning, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for that production rundown, Nick. And everyone listening, I, I hope you've enjoyed this. I know this is a movie that's, you know, been discussed a bunch and is, is so lauded. So I don't know how much more we can bring to it, but, uh, you know, I hope. I guarantee it's never been compared to Alan Iverson before. So, Yes, that is a safe bet. Yeah. I, again, we, we cannot thank Matt Johnson enough for coming on. That was so much fun. And yeah, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this. This was, it's nice to do an, an anniversary episode for a movie. Again, hopefully we get this out on time, but this is our first John Carpenter movie too. So yay. Yay. Could have been Halloween, but no, they all voted for Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street. Whatever the hell we just did. Uh. <laughs> Eric's just shaking his head at me for never letting anything go. Well, at least you're hanging on to that and not the fact that Final Destination lost to Phantasm. So. Or is that still a wound? Oh, I you? am. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which came up because Eric Kaiser, who we just talked about on the 2011, he worked on one of those movies too. But that's a franchise for another day. Hell yeah. So in the meantime, again, thank you everyone so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. After this, hopefully, again, if this comes out on time, we should have Doug Jones Day 3 coming up right after this. And we've got a lot more fun stuff coming up. we got more Nightmare on Elm Street coming. And that's going to be interesting because it's going to be New Nightmare in the remake. So it's going to be a hell of a duo. Can't wait. But one way or the other, thank you so much for listening. And if you like this, please, if you want to go leave us a review on iTunes or whatever your pod platform is, that'd be great. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at Scary Stuff Pod on Twitter, at Scary Stuff Podcast on Instagram. And we are also on Letterboxd at Scary Stuff Podcast. And we have a website, scarystuffpodcast.com. All right. In the meantime, this is Eric signing off saying thank you so much for listening. This is Nick's asking, maybe we're at war with Norway? <laughs> uh, and this is Jacob saying, I don't want to spend the winter on this fucking couch. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. The Conjuring 4. Yeah, it's Conjuring 4. <laughs> he, Jake's so good at this game.